Before you get to this podcast, some news from me, Charles Cook, editor of National Review Online and co-host of the Mad Dogs and Englishman podcast, which is now a live proposition once more. Yes, it is back, having taken a bit of a hiatus. You can find it everywhere you could find it before. You can find it on nationalreview.com. You can find it at iTunes, at Google Play, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn. And if you had let your subscription expire because you thought it was over, so did we, you can resubscribe at no cost whatsoever whenever you get a chance. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting, well, we'll see if it's exciting, edition of the uh, Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Charles Krauthammer's Things That Matter. We'll talk about more more about that in a little bit. Um, it is also brought to you by, and this is not really brought to us by, I just, I'm supposed to plug it and I'm glad to, and I'll get to this too later, the uh, fifth annual William F. Buckley Prize Dinner, which will be in Chicago on October 18th. I'll give you more details about that. I will be there, um, as will the entire sort of cannonball-run cast of stars of National Review. But today, we have a very special guest, and in almost every sense of the word special. We have one Sonny Bunch. You may know him from such podcasts as The Weekly Substandard, an occasional guest, and you're like the producer of Write and Writer? Yeah, I, uh, I, I... You're the bleeper. I'm the bleeper. Yeah. And uh, I make sure the microphones are in semi-working order. Okay. So – and you – I first met you, I think, when you were still at the Washington Times. Is that right? Possibly. Maybe even before that at the Weekly Standard. When maybe. I at the Weekly Standard. Okay. All right. And um, – I've been floating around D.C. for a while. Yeah. I've seen you pushing your shopping cart. Um, so uh, friends of mine are listeners – let me put it this way. Listeners may not be familiar with the Weekly Substandard. They may not be f- familiar with the sort of – rabid Dothraki uh, rage that any uh, bad-mouthing or slighting of the weekly sub- substandards elicits on Twitter. Mm. There are literally Twitter threads. I mean, the super thread, how long? The mega thread. The mega thread. The mega thread. How, how long is that thing now? I, you, it, it, it stretches beyond time. Yeah. Back into the before, the long, long ago. It's uh, in, it's like the, the Frost prim- Bridge or something. Out of the primordial <laughs> ooze came the mega thread, and it dominates... Uh, anyone who comes into its path. Yeah. I've had, I've, I, I will be honest, I, it's sometimes occasionally have to mute the thread so I can actually get work done. Yeah. But, but it, it, you know, if you stay on the, if you stay on the right side of the mega thread, you'll be fine. Yeah. I, I am not on the right side of the mega thread. You are, you're <laughs> one of the enemies of the state. There's, there's actually a chart. And so we're not going to get too deep into, it's not even the subculture. It's really a, it's a nanoculture um, of That's, the mega thread. This is they're going to start a whole new thread just, um, just to attack you. Uh, but look, I am a fan. You were the second uh, of the three weekly substandard uh, hosts to be on my podcast. Yeah, well, I we were, you know, uh, JBL and I were a little bit upset when Vic came in here and did de- Gene. I know we weren't. 
<laughs> we weren't thrilled with that, and that's why I've been I've been a little bit hesitant to you know come on myself. I've been some wounds. I, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was one of the greatest crossover episodes of a podcast <laughs> in all of human history. I mean. So, uh, but since we're on this subject, and I promise we'll get to weightier things as we move forward. Oh, I should also say that you're a columnist or contributor. I don't know what the title they give you at the Washington Post. Yeah, contributor, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's where you um, traffic in some of your more outrageous Star Wars revisionism, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I have a couple questions. I hope listeners will bear with me. You, you bore with me last week with David Bonson where we got deep into the weeds of – pre-millennialism, or however you pronounce it. I can't do it, so we'll just start here. The opening of the weekly substandard is often much longer. Let me put it this way. The throat-clearing conversation about how was your uh-huh. week yeah. is often longer than the actual substance of the weekly substandard. Okay. Okay? Is I, I, Do your listeners care more about the Chinese buffet that Vic had in Greater Shirlandria than they actually do about your hot takes on movies? Well, so here's here's what what is the actual substance of the weekly substandard? That's that's the question here. We need to we need to bring it back. It's one like a level. Zincone kind of thing because one it, hand it, clapping. Right. I mean, you know, in theory, we have this top we are going to talk about, you know, Mission Impossible this right. week on the episode that goes up on Thursday. Subscribe at iTunes. But, you know, what do what do people actually want? We have found and perhaps this is why we have a smaller audience than some other more uh, selective, podcasts, a more selective, more, you know, <laughs> more discerning uh, group of fans. But we've we found that people actually kind of like the the interactions between us before. And uh, I mean, it's like any it's like any um, somebody I, maybe it was Rob Long. I can't remember said that anybody who is good at podcasting is just doing this because they're bad at radio, right? <laughs> so like the, you know, but, but the, but the idea there is in a slightly less snarky sort of way is, is a good one that like the reason people listen to morning zoo type shows, right? Or, you know, the sports junkies, which I listen to on, on the radio here in DC sure. or Howard Stern, you know, whatever they, 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 they listen to it in large part for the interviews with celebrities or the interviews with sports reporters or whatever, but they also like the interaction between the hosts or between, mm-hmm. you know, the main guy, Howard Stern, and his minions. Like, part that's all part of the show. Yeah. Now, granted, we we probably are a little self-indulgent <laughs> on this on this angle of it. Uh, we're, we're probably, you know, pushing it. And, and like I said, we have probably limited our universe of listeners by creating a series of totally impenetrable uh, in-jokes that have yeah. developed over the last 18 months or so. Yeah. But, you know, for the for the for the the loyal few. Uh, I hope they're they're having a good time. I, you know, look, full disclosure, I'm a listener, um, and it's kind of like The Wire, but in podcast form. That's that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like every now and then, my wife really wants to be a listener, right? Because mm-hmm. she's a fan of yours. She's a she loves Jonathan. She's known Jonathan forever, but she loves Vic, and like I've been, you know, I was in the in I was working in the AEI building when the Weekly Standard was started, and my wife sort of worked in that orbit down the hall. And we've been calling the weekly standard the substandard since its inception, mm-hmm. right? And so she has a sort of a, an emotional commitment to this. But every now and then when we're on long drives, I'll say, you want to listen to the weekly substandard? And the last time I tried, you guys were talking something about D&D, which I could totally uh, grok, right? I mean, yeah. not every detail of it. And it got so... Role-playing games? Was this the superhero role-playing game? It might have been. It was a couple weeks ago. Anyway, my wife, she turned into Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds (laughs) and just started screaming, Nerds! Nerds! (laughs) That's not wrong. (laughs) I mean... So, but no, I agree with you entirely about the ensemble thing and people actually care about personalities. And I think this is one of the things that cable news misses is that 
people get attached to individual personalities more than they get attached to like their worldview. Sure. And um, but even more than that, again, it's like you get attached to somebody else's relationship, right? Which, like, I we we every once in a while, uh, you know, we'll run into somebody out in the wild who's a fan of the show, and they'll come up and they'll say, "Hey, you know, we loved." hearing you guys talk about, you know, whatever. Mostly it's JBL and Vic because they've actually known each other for 20 yeah. years. They worked together for 20 years. Um, I, I worked with them for much less time. And they were like exotic dancers together. Or something, it, right? they, I, my understanding is that they have traveled the circuit of uh, brothels and yeah, other yeah. underworld. Gone through you know, cases of baby oil together. We don't uh, need to get into the weeds yeah. on that. Uh, but, uh, but, the, but, but, but they will say, you know, hey, we really like – it is like – being in an office with friends. Mm-hmm. And like that, I think that's a fair description of it. You know, how, yeah. how, how much tolerance you have for that f- will kind of uh, determine how much you can enjoy the first 20 or 30 minutes of each show. Yeah. But, okay. Fair enough. That's all fair. I mean, have, I ever, have you ever heard? I don't know. I, I know I've never told it to you. The, the story of the conception of the five on Fox. No. Okay. So you'll like this. So I only had – I've met – I met Roger Ailes a bunch of times, but I only had one serious meeting with him. And so I went to his office at Fox News and, you know, when you go meet Roger Ailes for the first time, you expect to walk into this room with like a white tiger on a chain, you know, and you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it was a pretty humble office and he was telling me the story of the five. And to make it short, when Beck left Fox, Roger knew that – and let's stipulate for all the people who think telling stories about Roger Ailes is – problematic because he was a problematic person stipulated um he was the weirdest mix of like boss hog and aristotle i ever met i mean like really smart and really crude Mm. and so he told me that when they replaced beck they were worried whoever if they gave that shot that show that spot to an individual host the ratings would tank and it would ruin their career right and it would look like oh my gosh they don't know what to do to replace beck right so he deliberately made The Five a temporary show with just a card table and mm-hmm. five people. And Ailes was hugely proud of the fact that he got his start in all this in theater. And he ca- and he always cast things with a very theatric eye. You know, he's famous as a consultant where he would visit local uh, television stations. He would go to his hotel and he would turn the volume all the way down and just look at the body language of the hosts. And he f- his view is if, if it wasn't worth – if you didn't want to f- watch a guy – or a woman with the sound off, you didn't want to watch it with the sound on, which mm. is very anti-enlightenment, but mm. whatever. And so he cast this thing as a theatrical thing. And he said, so what you need is, first of all, you need the matinee idol, right? And he says, that's Eric Bowling. You know, all the women, men want to be him, women want to sleep with him. I didn't okay. object, but I have problems with all of these characterizations, right? And then he said, and then... You need the comedian, right? You need the funny guy. And so that was – he cast Greg Gutfeld as that, right? And then he said, you need the the bombshell sex pot, right? And that's the leg chair, Kim Guilfoyle or whoever. And then he said, you need the nice girl, right? Sort of the Marianne from Gilligan's mm-hmm. Island. And he said, you know, he said, that's why we picked Dana Perino because she's like the uh, the nice girl at the church social that – this is a quote. I'm not making this up. She's like the nice girl from the church social who you think if you could feed her enough mash whiskey, you could have a really good time with her, but you know you'll never be able to. It's like, that was oddly specific. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he said, oh, and then you need the liberal. And, <laughs> and so, and again, this is a quote. He says, I picked the biggest scumbag degenerate drug addict I could find, which was Bob Beckel. Mm-hmm. And that's how he cast the thing. And he would tell the people, 
during you know the run up to it, he says, you know, look, you guys don't get don't get too big ahead about all of this. I know this show is called the Five, but um, in my mind, it's called the Ten because I got replacements for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very strange conversation. Yeah. So I agree with all that. You know, ke- chemistry was hugely important and all the rest. Um, I just think that sometimes the chemistry goes a little weird. I mean, I dig it, but but you're speaking largely the language of my youth. Um, so let's switch gears really quickly to the Write and Writer podcast. Sure. I have a specific question. Okay. Is this Aaron Harrison fellow? Yes, Aaron Harrison. Yes. Uh, President of the Free Beacon, I think. I believe so, yeah. I can't remember yeah. what exactly. The guy who writes the checks. Is, sure, the is, guy who writes the checks. Okay. I don't think I've ever met him. I might have. Um, uh, I think he can be very amusing. He's a very interesting guy. Is he playing a character or is that him? Well... Uh, what, what you know, in, in 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 this in this life of ours, uh-huh. uh, you know, who uh-huh. this life we have chosen. Not, who among when we step in front of a microphone uh-huh. and when we are when we're working the the twitters and you know the social media, who among us is not playing a character of some sort? You know what? I I would say the my straight answer to this. My straight answer to this is uh, he is playing himself, but cranked up. To about a thirteen. Okay. So if you if you have a zero to ten, he is um, he is he is over the top. And look, he also you know the whole the 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 show is right and writer. Uh huh. So if we have you know if using the kind of Ailes idea, if we have Matt Continetti in the squish chair, right? We need somebody in the right writer chair, right, right. To really kind of pull pull the whole pull the Overton window over. Yeah. No. That's seven notches. That's the sense I often get is that it it gives Matt the space to be reasonable um, about a lot of things. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't say that we had planned it that way exactly. To, I I wouldn't say we planned it to make Matt look reasonable because uh-huh. you know. Matt's a reasonable person, anyway. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, sure. He's a great, great thinker, and uh-huh. one of the not only a handsome man, but a brights of our time. Yes, yes. Um, but the but 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 that is kind of how it worked out. Is that you know, again the the the, the, the initial version of the show that we had done was much different, and much more kind of free flowing. Uh-huh. But when we kind of shifted to this write and writer idea, it was like, okay, well, we need somebody to be a writer. Uh-huh. And Harrison. I wouldn't say Harrison ever says anything he doesn't actually believe. So he often really does believe that everything that Trump does is genius. Well, I, genius <laughs> is a strong word, but I mean, look if you're if you're uh, if, again if you're trying to you know pull it over to the uh-huh. right, okay. he is a, he's he is a legitimate Donald Trump supporter. Sure, 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 sure. I'm not saying he's lying, yeah. but you know, but it's just there are there are times where I I will say he can't be he can't be serious. Hmm. Um, so that brings me to you. <laughs> um, oh boy. So for listeners who don't well, – what, what, rather than have me grotesquely mischaracterize your position, why don't you give me the Sunny Bunch 101 position on the good versus evil of the Star Wars universe? Well – I would I, I would actually like to hear the mischaracterization. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, so look, the, the 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 Star Wars universe is faintly boring, frankly. Mm-hmm. If you just look at it in the way that George Lucas has kind of envisioned it in the first three m- movies, where uh, light is good and dark is bad, mm-hmm. and you've got you know these various weird Zen kind right. of uh, all strapped onto the body of a very basic hero's journey. I mean, it, right. whatever. The prequels, uh, for all of their failures in storytelling, which are um, manifest in which you can, yeah, I mean, you can go through the red letter media 
you know, nine-hour breakdown of why the whole prequel trilogy doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of truth to to much of that. Um, but I will say, in retrospect, the one thing that the prequel does is actually kind of lay out the political universe of the Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, yeah. And once you start getting kind of into the nitty-gritty, you, you uh, as JVL has put it, JVL is the real progenitor of this whole uh-huh. thing. Um, but once you start getting into the nitty-gritty of what is what is actually going on, you have a democracy that has failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is unable to protect its people or engage in trade and all of that. And the empire is maybe not – it's not a liberal democracy, certainly. It's not the ideal Mm -hmm. that we would strive for. Mm -hmm. But it is up against what is a chaotic, poorly run organization that is policed by this weirdly aristocratic, authoritarian Jedi order that is accountable to no one Mm -hmm. except Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, is the Empire that bad? Now, the Empire, we, have, we, should, we should just point out that the Empire is nowhere near as vicious in the films as, say, the First Order is. Uh-huh. Right? The First Order is clearly a... You know, right. Uh, uh, but the, but the, the Empire itself in the movies, you know, you just see guys out there doing their job. Working on their ships, getting blown up by space terrorists. But aren't the uh, – see, there we go. See, this getting, is the, the, Getting blown up by okay. – I mean – So mean, you think well, the rebellion is a terrorist organization? Well, well I, uh, they are literally a terrorist organization. Uh-huh. They are out there destroying government buildings uh-huh. with no legitimate legal authority, uh-huh. uh, certainly. Um, but also – but but I mean if you if you just look at – the founding it, fathers terrorists? Just if you, if you just – if you just – don't <laughs> – if, if you just look at Luke Skywalker, he's uh-huh. a he's – a, He's a he's an impoverished farm boy right. who was radicalized by a religious fanatic living in a cave. Yeah, 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 yeah. To fly his ship essentially into a giant building filled with thousands of people. Uh huh. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that's exactly like 9/11, but it's, <laughs> maybe it's it, not it's not that far off. Maybe it inspired 9/11. Yeah, possible, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Look, yeah. I don't. I you, yeah. I would have to go through the Bin Laden records. Yeah. To yeah. see if Star Wars was amongst like the weird anime porn. Yeah, you have to go through a lot of porn for. <laughs> so. um, no, I mean, look, it's 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 this. You know, it is it is a way to have a bit of fun with the series. And the thing, and honestly, this is a very uh, amusing early version of owning the libs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because what you what what we found when uh, every time JBL's original story, which is called the case for the empire, you can Google it. Yeah, no, it's a great piece. It's a uh, it's very very entertaining and amusing. But every time that that would circle around on Twitter, and it would do this about once every eighteen months or so, somebody mm-hmm. would find it and be like, "Oh my god, the neocons <laughs> love empire! Look at this! Look at this Star Wars thing." That they wrote, left-wing Twitter would lose their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like lose their mind and be like, I can't believe anybody would take this seriously. Ah, ah, ah. Which is exactly what they were doing. <laughs> and so so we, it, it would always be funny to just kind of sit there and be like, no, no, it's actually – the empire is good. Yeah. It's unironically good. We love it. As a defender of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I'm not opposed to the uh, – and the, to some extent the British Empire. I'm not opposed to the idea that empires can be good. Yeah. yeah so. And and I, I, I also do think that there is a, a, a legitimate unironic good to kind of examining what George Lucas was getting at, right? Mm-hmm. George Lucas has – who knows how – how you know much this is retconning in his own mind, but George Lucas has always said that uh, the the empire was supposed to represent America. Mm-hmm. That the 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 empire was you know uh, a force of evil, just like America in the Vietnam 
war age. Now I'm the, really hating George Lucas. And the 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 the, the, the Ewoks are just uh, you know VC trying to take down the invaders of their homeland and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So if we want to think about that, if we want to look, if you want to if you want to make this argument, then let's talk about the Death Star destroying Alderaan. Yes, yeah, so really? that's where I want to go because I, I, I really I'm... that much different than Hiroshima. Yes, it was. No, nah, <laughs> it was. It was. Collective punishment is and genocide are bad. And I, that's that's one of these things that emerges from. It. I will say, look, uh, I wrote a column about it. Um, Jonathan's take about droids being slaves, mm-hmm. I think, is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Perfect. and I I I I've yet to see a good argument about why he's wrong because they're sentient. They call the people who own them their masters. They allegedly feel pain, right? And they have to follow our orders. Well, they very explicitly feel pain. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is like a whole, you know, punishing them right. is like a subplot in several of the movies. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and I, I thought – so let me ask you this. The – what was the last one? The Last Jedi? What, what are we – well, The one, one where Luke dies. The Last Jedi. St- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he'll um, – Episode 8. The 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 female robot who tries to lead a oh a oh oh solo are you thinking solo solo solo, solo. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I had a real problem with that okay be, for this reason um, I don't want to say it's problematic I know that's triggering for you but um, uh, the it's one thing for us to say hey look think about this and I and I I, I think on the merits I don't think it's a trollish argument I think mm-hmm. it's a it's a sincere argument I mean I, I remember um, Edward Lutvak did a great had a great headline for a piece and commentary in the 90s, which asked, what if Bosnians were dolphins, right? And the whole thing being like, we would be much more outraged about the slaughter of dolphins, right? If the droids can all pass Turing tests, right? And they are sentient, self-aware, pain-feeling. There's that thing about C-3PO actually having a, a deity, right? It has, actually has a religion. Mm-hmm. He says, thank the master or what, the creator. Thank the yeah, thank the maker, the maker. And... So if you if you take that argument seriously, then it's a serious argument, right? And then in Solo, they kind of had fun with it. Mm-hmm. And the idea that it's sort of a joke to think liberating mm-hmm. slaves is sort of a silly, fun, little side bit of shtick. Mm-hmm. That kind of bothered me. There's something in there that's irreverent in a nasty way that I kind of that kind of bothered me. I there there is that we had a serious argument about this on the substandard. Matt Cottonetti was actually filling in um, for one of our one of the other guys. We had a we had a real and serious argument about whether or not the female droid character was played sincerely or for laughs. Yeah, there was the the argument they made was Star Wars is woke now. That's mm-hmm. like their thing. That's their brand. And the actress who played it is like a female, you know, um, a feminist comedian, mm-hmm. you know, who like does 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 woke shtick as her thing, and that they that that the the droid character was played sincerely, seriously arguing for droid rights everywhere, mm-hmm. and that it is supposed that it is like a tragedy when she when she is killed. I thought that was insane. Mm-hmm. I thought that was I thought that that argument. Is is like totally contrary to the actual re- to the actual like what happens in the movie because all of those lines are played for laughs mm-hmm. and all the reactions from the other characters are are eye rolls and like oh god now right. and when and when she actually frees the like the droids in the control room or whatever they're like kind of bumbling doing right. uh, physical humor and physical comedy and it kind of throws the whole plan off so I am I'm with you insofar as I think that they were playing this for shtick and and for laughs. 
But there's a problem there, right? I mean, like, let's say you had an episode of the Star Wars movies where Ewoks are rounded up into concentration camps, mm-hmm. right? And like, oh, look how funny it is. They're trying to escape being liquidated. Mm-hmm. You would sort of see that, like, just because they're alien creatures doesn't mean that the the architecture of the of of the thing you're playing off of isn't a serious thing. Yeah. Uh, I, look, if, 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 I I am kind of with you. Uh, I'm kind of with you, except for the fact that I thought it really worked as it made me laugh. Sure. And because it made me laugh, I mean, look, the death of Stalin also made me laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, and the fair, death, that's fair. And the death of Stalin is about the, you know, yeah. uh, the most evil people who have ever lived. Right. Uh, outside of Nazi Germany. So, right. I, like, it's... No, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I just think, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff about portrayal of black people from the early days of Hollywood that we watch now and we cringe, mm-hmm. right? In the days where we actually have fully functioning artificially intelligent droids going back and deciding whether or not to liquidate humanity, they're going to watch some of these movies and say, that's not funny. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, look, I think there's a lot of things they're going to look at us and say, well, these these people got to go. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so um, you did a big piece, big splashy front cover story for the Weekly Standard uh, was it two months ago, something like that? Yeah, two, three months ago. Something um, on the new way we watch TV now or sure. something like that. Why don't you run through your basic argument in there, and then I will pounce. My, Although I, I basically agree with you. So. My basic argument is that there's too much TV, mm-hmm. and because there is too much TV, nothing well, – well, for several reasons, but largely because there is too much TV, nothing from this new golden age of TV will really last into the future. Um, so if you if – you, you should everyone should read the piece. Go now, read it, pause this. Yes. Thirty minutes later, you come back. the 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 argument that I'm that I was kind of trying to make, and I don't know if I succeeded, was, uh, you know, uh, there is more good TV now than ever, mm-hmm. and with all of this good TV comes various problems. Number one, you've fractured the audience so badly that you can't really create a monoculture around any show. I mean, the most Popular shows right now. Uh, I mean, I mean, like the most vulgarly popular show, shows, like the, your CBS comedies and stuff like that, do fifteen to seventeen million right. viewers. So five percent of the population is watching the most popular thing. That is starkly different from years past when Mash would capture, you know, sixty-seven percent of the yeah. nation's eyeballs or whatever, whatever the you know series finale of that was. So you 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 have this you have this world in which you have many many good things, but almost all of them are watched by between one and five million people. Mm-hmm. And five million is on very much the higher end of shows. I mean, like, how many people, I, maybe you know this, I, this, I'm breaking a legal rule here, but how many people watched Mad Men when it was on? Oh, I don't know, but a couple million probably, yeah. One million. Yeah. Like, generally in the in the one, you know, and, and it's hard to, it's, you know, there are DVR viewings, there are people who catch up on DVD and that sort of thing. So or like, Girls is the best example of this. Everyone's talking Girls, about a sure. huge friggin' hit, and it's like... Four people watch girls. Girls. I mean, girls is the perfect example of this, where it's a show that everybody writes about. You know, I write about. You know, Ross Douthat's writing about Slate, National Review. Yeah. Uh, everyone is writing about this show that maybe like six hundred thousand people are watching. Right. You know? So, but anyway, so you have a lot of you have a lot of shows like this. So, so there's there's very little agreement on kind of what is actually the best when you combine that with the fact that the business model of TV is changing. Between Netflix, uh, Amazon, and kind of the basic cable cable shows, so you know it, it used to be 
and it still is in, in many cases, you get a new episode a week and you watch for 10 weeks and that's the season of the show. Netflix and Amazon have, I think, radically altered the game and not in a good way with their shotgun blast approach to seasons. It creates a kind of race to see who can finish it first right. and everybody has to watch everything really fast to keep up. When you do something like this, you make it hard to go back and watch shows again. And my argument would be that— And when you do, you go back and you binge them again. Right. So yeah. my, my, my argument would be that a lot of the shows from the past that we consider great— a show like The Simpsons, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. A, a show like The Simpsons is a great TV show. Everyone loves it. Why do we love it? We love it because we watched it over and over again in syndication, right? It wasn't just that we would watch it once and be like, uh, you know, uh, Lisa needs braces— Dental plan, like is is like that's like not a thing that would necessarily stick. But if you watch it twenty times in syndication, right, that's a thing that like jumps out at you, and it can become a common cultural touch point. And you know, the website Frinkiac, one of my favorite sites, go to it all the time. You make you can make little gifts of Simpsons lines. It's fantastic. But like, I don't think that that website really works without the syndication model. Mm-hmm. And we are basically at a point where we're destroying the syndication model. Like, there's no there's no reason. To, to go back and rewatch things that are being replayed on TBS or, you know, your local Fox affiliate or whatever because you've got 17 hours of The Handmaid's Tale to watch or you've right. got, you know, um, uh, 20 hours of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to watch. Like there's, there's just so much other stuff to do. You can't really build that base of repetition. So you don't have to give me your exact age, but are you a young Gen Xer or an old millennial? I'm a Xennial. So I'm kind of in that weird in-between. I would say I'm either the oldest – Millennial or the youngest Xer? Yeah, because I I think as a generalization, Gen X is the last generation to grow up in a common culture, at least when it comes to things like TV. Right? I grew up in a world where you heard about you heard new songs on the radio. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up. You know, I came home every day after school and turned on the four thirty movie, and that's how I saw all of the great you know Tojo production movies, all the Godzillas, all the. Um, Gamera, which was not Tojo, I know, please people. And, um, I, you know, I watched the Planet of the Apes movies 20 times because they would have Planet of the Apes week and it was really exciting. And I also watched a lot of old movies because when you only had four channels, which is what my early childhood was like, it's like, well, I could watch the news or I could watch Day of the Triffids on Channel 9, you know? And, um, so I watched Day of the Triffids, you know? And so, you know, and I grew up watching, a lot of shows in syndication that were way before my time. I Love Lucy. Sure. Twilight Zone, Outer Limits. Twilight Zone, for, you know, for instance, um, uh, I Dream of Jeannie. You know, pa, uh, John Podoritz and I, we can talk about The Odd Couple for hours because I think it was one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Um, but it was so New York-centric. And you don't have – there are a handful of things that are like that for people who are younger. Like my daughter, who's 15 now, can actually have – quite fluent conversations with Jack Butler about SpongeBob because I think there's still cartoons that kids mm-hmm. grow up as a monoculture sure. kind of thing, right? And so there's and there's this brief window from when my daughter was the right age that cuz you watch what what your kid is watching. So like I can talk somewhat about Wonder Pets and a couple of these things, but I think you're right that there's this balkanization. The question is why are we sure it's a bad thing? Well, I this is it's a new thing. I agree. This with is you. not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this is kind of the 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 way I conclude the piece is you know uh, maybe maybe streaming is kind of more of a uh, is a better definition for what we do than we know, right? Like if you look out at a river, 
It's not like you're like, well, this water is different than the water I saw right. the day before. It's just you have this kind of unending flow that you look at and you're like, oh, that's nice. And that may be what we have now. We may just have a, a situation where, you know, whatever is the new hot thing on Netflix or on HBO or Amazon or Hulu or, you know, Showtime or whatever is the thing that everybody watches. And then we move on to the next thing. And maybe that's maybe that's fine. It just is different. It's it's a different way to consume art. I mean, art has we've created canons of art for as long as we have appreciated art. And if you, it, it, it it's just new. And as uh, as someone who is skeptical of things that are new, yes. Uh, Although I, I, let me let me push back on the newness thing for a second, right? So Yuval Levin and I from different angles have been and he's I think he's working on a book on this and I'll be much smarter than anything I can articulate here have been arguing that um, a lot of what we're seeing is actually a reversion to an older model and I'll give you an example the example I always use is with um, the news media right in the 19th century you know de Tocqueville writes about this you know newspapers were like the backbone of community newspapers were Ex- most of them were wildly explicitly partisan, right? And so you have know, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, right? It was a Democratic Party newspaper. I remember someone telling me once about how the coverage of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, if you read just the Republican papers, they would say Douglas was so incensed by having been crushed by the the, the master order Abraham Lincoln that, you know— he was left to blubbering tears, you know, as, as, in his defeat. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat papers were like, 10 men had to restrain Lincoln. Such was his rage at being so bested by you know, mm-hmm. Douglas, right? Mm-hmm. And you sort of had to read both to balance it. That changed in the 20th century, largely with a technological change, where starting with radio, or starting really with a telegram, and then with radio, and then really with TV, where there was this notion of objective media emerged. And that's the thing that everybody today on the right and the left has this as this, first of all, it's kind of a BS version of what the media was like in, say, 1965. But it is this ideal of this objective thing, right? And it's like Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcast by saying, and that's the way it is, right? Not that's what we think it happened or, you know, but it's this ontological, metaphysical, existential statement about the state of the universe kind of crap. And... Meanwhile, Europe never went that way. You go in, you, know, you go to England and you got the Telegraph, which is kind of like conservative, and you got the Times, which is a Tory, and you got the Guardian, which is Bolshevik, and you go on the right through it. It doesn't mean they're bad papers, but you just know where they're coming from, right, right. right? And so now, I think with the rise of the internet, I mean, I saw this when I founded National Review Online, the media started becoming more grounded to a community again, right? And this great parentheses, which came out of the fact that about two generations of people starting with the new, starting with World War One, but then the New Deal, and then World War Two, we had we raised a whole generation of people, um, which is one of the reasons why I think the Greatest Generation has many flaws, who thought it was fine to show their allegiance to big institu- big national institutions, and take orders from the federal government, and that's eroding, and we're balkanizing again. Now, there's a lot of the balkanizing I hate, and there's a lot of add-on, knock-on problems with it, but. In the 19th century, you didn't have a monoculture, mm-hmm. right? You had, you know, uh, Red Badge of Courage would come out or, or Moby Dick or whatever it is. And it was, it's like streaming, right? You know, and um, so the really good stuff would rise to yeah. the top. But, you know, if like shows like 
Breaking Bad and The Wire and The Sopranos are better understood as sort of television versions of novels. Right. So this is – the obvious counter to my argument is, you know, you've always had a giant glut of entertainment, right? Like go back and read all the people who were writing when Jane Austen was writing. Right. Right. Thousand people you've never heard of, you know, 10,000 books you've never read and will never read and no one will ever read again. And like Jane Austen, we will have our – David Simons or, you know, or more likely single shows where you have like somebody, you know, The Sopranos will last. Okay, let's, uh, or The Wire. Let's use The Wire because mm-hmm. everybody talked about The Wire being Dickensian and, right. you know, the great American novel just on TV. I mean, The, the Wire is 60 hours long. Mm-hmm. 60 hours long. And while it is certainly not impossible to watch The Wire, like every a lot of people have watched The Wire. I've watched The Wire. Mm-hmm. You've watched The Wire. I've watched The Wire many times. Um, it, it is it is still a kind of daunting thing to sit down and do. I mean, what can you do in the time it takes to read? Uh, I actually – one of the things I do in my piece is kind of break down all the various things you can do. You know, you could watch all of Stanley Kubrick's movies twice mm-hmm. in that period of time. You could watch uh, – But you couldn't read Moby, you could read Moby Dick in that time, right? I mean, you could read Moby Dick plus other books. I mean yeah. you could read Moby Dick and Crime and Punishment and War and Peace. In sixty hours, maybe I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I, my lips get tired. But yeah. but the but 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 this is my point. Like, or you could watch one show that ran for a couple of years about a dying you know town in 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 the Mid Atlantic. And this is not as this is not meant as a critique of The Wire, which I think is great. It's easily maybe the fifth or sixth best HBO show. Uh, <laughs> and and I see what you did there. But it's fourth. But it. But it, but the fourth season. I mean, the, I, this is a series. The fourth season of The Wire is, I think, the greatest. Is in the the like top five greatest seasons of television of all time, and I think it is like a stunningly. Uh, That's the emergence of Marlowe as the main. Well, it, but it's but it's it's the one that's set in the school system. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. No, that was really so good. It, yeah. it, 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 and it kind of captures a lot of the things that David Simon had been getting at in the corner and mm-hmm. uh, homicide. It, it just like captures this idea of poverty as a thing that is almost impossible to escape from if you don't have the right, you know, support groups around you. Um, and I am very sympathetic to this argument. I think it's I think it's. Uh, it is a it is a masterpiece of the televisual arts, um, but again, it's you know it it, it it is it is nestled within sixty hours of entertainment that, and kind of can't be understood outside of that. Mm. As opposed to say going back to Kubrick, you know, you could watch Clockwork Orange and be like, okay, this is a Clockwork Orange, or Doctor Strange Eleven, and be like, right, all right, this is these are things we don't need to necessarily do the whole Kubrick thing to get it. So. Just on a side note, you know how you, you um, said every eighteen months or so, the Star War, the Empire is good mm-hmm. argument triggers people. Over the years, this is more in the two thousands when it was still on the air. Every now and then, I would write that I think the show is, if not explicitly conservative, that the Wire is shockingly more conservative than people want to realize, and. All these people get so furious at me, and they say, "You know, the Simon's a Marxist. It's Marxist. It's blah blah." blah. And I would always point out, I get that. But, like, first of all, if you actually know anything about the history of Marxism, there was a lot of versions of Marxism that were more conservative than people realize, right? Because there's a, there's a streak of conservative, like, there's a streak of conservatism that just doesn't like modernity, doesn't like industrialization, doesn't like, you know, uh, mass culture, right? And I always remember reading in some New Yorker piece about J.R. Tolkien, who said that he thought that all factories should be hidden 
way back in some desolate era, era away from where anybody could see them. That was his idea of how technology should be used, right? But anyway, um, the, the, what, what, what liberals who always think they're more radical than they really are, they look at the wire and they see this as this indictment of liberal democratic capitalism and all this kind of stuff. And to a certain extent it is, to be mm. sure. Um, and I'm sure that's how Simon sees it, right? But who are the targets of the, this morality tale? It's the, it's a city that has been run by Democrats for a century, right? Uh, you know, once Garcetti wins the primary, he says, well, are there even Republicans in this town, right? It's the union controlled public schools, right? Um, even the, the poor beleaguered dock workers are all part of one of these antiquated unions that just can't deal with modernity. Cops are all essentially a Democratic co- FDR coalition constituency. There's not a conservative in the movie, in the series, right. right? And their indictment is a classic sort of left, serious, radical left, what do you want to call it, Marxist or not, I don't care, um, radical left indictment of 20th century urban liberalism. And we're not, you know, conservatives are not part of that indictment per se, right? I mean, the lefties will come back and you say, well, that's because you guys underfund it and, you know, you don't give them all the money they need. All right, well, that's that's a nice programmatic point, but I don't – this is the world you guys created where you had all the keys of power. And 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 this is one of the reasons why that, that series works so well for – why so many conservatives can like it, right? Um, well, the heroes of the show are the small businessmen. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the drug dealers. Right. <laughs> who, have, who, are, who are trying to – who are trying to create a system that uh, – uh, Incurs less violence and right. Well, Stringer Bell, right? Right. Well, the, the Stringer Bell subplot is my favorite Mine show, too. but yeah. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, I like I totally. It's it, well. This is also the girls' argument. This is Ross Douthat's girls' argument that this is like the not, not so secretly the most reactionary show. Yeah, yeah. On TV of the last you know ten years or so, it's a show about how the modern kind of millennial lifestyle is empty and soulless and awful. Um, Do you think the makers of girls see it that way? I don't think they see it explicitly that way, but I think Lena Dunham. I mean, Lena Dunham is a you know Democrat. Yeah, she, I've heard. She's, I've heard. She's, she's 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 a she's a left progressive Democrat, but I think she understands kind of the uh, the emptiness of that sort of life. I think she's smart enough to see that. All right. So um, I know you were trolling a little bit when you said it's one of the five or six best shows on HBO, yeah. <laughs> um, but. Can you name one or two shows you think on HBO that are better? I mean, well, the Sopranos. Sopranos. I mean, yeah. Sopranos uh, is better. Deadwood, Deadwood. I think. Yeah, is, I love Deadwood. Is better. I. All right, so give me your rough. We're not going to hold you to it, but I know you've been asked to do lists all your life now. Sure. Best TV series of the last twenty years. Uh this is it's such a it's such a hard thing to talk about. One one that I really want to emphasize here because one of the reasons we we're, we're talking about this is because The Ringer just released a big list of the hundred best episodes of TV of all time. Mm. And that's kind of why I was recirculating my piece. And one show that they left off of it that I think everyone should at least appreciate and understand for what it did is The Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shield on FX was basically the first basic cable prestige drama. Um, it, it, uh, it, it showed that The Sopranos model could work uh, in the basic cable setting. Without The Shield, you don't get Breaking Bad and um, – and Mad Men and, and mm-hmm. kind of all the shows that have come after that. Uh, the Shield is 
uh, so it was on FX from 2002 to 2008, I believe. And it's about a team of vice cops who work LA and they basically steal a bunch of money and mm-hmm. they, they, they steal a bunch of money. And then they, in the, the first half of the show is them planning their robbery of this like Chechen, I think it was Chechen money train. And then the last half of the show is them slowly coming apart as they try to figure out what to do with all this cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Spoiler really, alert. it's yeah. really <laughs> fantastic and and just just magnificent. And it's one of the only shows from this era that has just nailed the 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 finale. Mm-hmm. The, seri- the series finale of the show is one of the best. So the list um, was the best episodes or the best final. It was episodes? the best episodes, just okay. the best episodes. It's a very weird list. What was their number one? Ep- their number one episode was an episode of Lost. Ah, oh, Jesus! It's, it was an episode of Lost, and it was uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, it was there was also an episode of the Jersey Shore in the top twenty. Oh, geez. it was very it was very much a list that was driven by Bill Simmons is the guy who runs the Ringer. It's yeah. very much you could kind of see his fingerprints on here, you know, tipping the scale. Uh, so anyway, The Shield is a show that I love and has been kind of forgotten. The reason I bring up The Shield is because it wasn't on this list. Uh-huh. Of despite being a, a great show, despite being like totally influential. It is it is now kind of largely forgotten because mm-hmm. it's there's 88 episodes. Who has time to go watch 88 episodes yeah, yeah, of yeah. some cop show? Yeah, even one as good as as the Shield. But also, uh, look, I'm I'm an enormous uh, fan of Deadwood. Uh, I was very excited to see that they're making a movie to kind of wrap up. I've got series. my fingers crossed. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see if it's. I mean, it's it's. it's I rewatch hard. Deadwood once every couple of years. The whole it's thing. It's so good. Yeah. It's a, we're. I'm actually rewatching it right now with my wife, and it just is. It's it's so so good. I am a big fan of Rome. I am too. I like I Rome is Rome is you know it's not I wouldn't say it's high art mm-hmm. exactly in the way that some of these shows are but it it does a really good job of kind of getting at the nature of power I and agree. I and agree. just really is entertaining. Um I I I want to give you a second to think about this in terms of other shows that you want to put on. I also I do a thing on this podcast from every now and then where I ask people what and it's a little weird. This is a little bringing Coles in Newcastle doing it with you. But um, what weird view, belief, theory do you have? Because you actually make a living by voicing these things. So it may not work. I'm, I'm wondering whether I should ask you what normal idea do you have. <laughs> um, the Sopranos is good. <laughs> um, uh, that uh, people that are sort of outside the box that if, if, if that was the only thing they knew about you, they would think you were a really weird dude. Okay. So if you think about that, okay. but first I want to talk about um, something else that matters, which is jo- Charles Krauthammer's things that matter. Um, the weekly standard called it required reading. Krauthammer is the very best. And this is the best of the best selected by him with an engaging and fascinating introduction, amazingly fresh and full of thought provoking formulations and arguments. I think that's all correct. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that Charles really, he really wanted to set out to write an original whole book and it was too daunting for him for all sorts of reasons and it would have taken him 10 years to do. And so instead, he really did put an enormous amount of effort into this book, figuring out which things to put in it. It's not your normal compilation. And so it, so things that matter really does cull it's, it's, it, there's a theme to the pudding is what I'm trying to say. It takes three decades of passion, pastimes, and politics. Um, one of the nation's most cogent conservative voices is how the New York Times described him. It's a New York Times bestseller again. I think it's one of these things when we talk about – when Sonny and I are talking about how things disappear and don't get remembered, it would break my heart if that applied to, um, uh, to Charles because he kind of is the Jane Austen of punditry of his lifetime. 
and I highly recommend people get it and have it. It's not to be too crude because I say this as a great compliment. Um, it's what I aimed my second book to be. It's a great bathroom book in the sense that you can just pick it up, open up to something, read for five minutes and put it down without feeling like you're lost. Um, I know Charles, I, I don't know if Crown will be happy I described it that way, but I know Charles would like it. So anyway, I highly recommend it. Delighted that they're sponsoring it. So now. Hey, can I just say that yeah. I, I actually just read Things That Matter yeah. like recently. And I, uh, it is, as, as somebody who writes the occasional op-ed, it has been extremely useful for me kind of in just in terms of rejiggering how my brain works when I write. Yeah. Because I like I, I was the New York Post asked me to write something and I, on um, on the Guardians of the Galaxy on James Gunn. And I was like, I don't do I have anything really to say about this? And I like went and I read some crowd hammer. I was like, oh, you know, maybe I could come up with a yeah. slightly different. So highly recommended. Yeah. The thing about Charles as a writer and I'm like, I'm a big fan of George Will. Um, I think all of us talk about how he was the best of the best of the best. And he really was a fantastic guy. Um, there was some short shrifting of George as an influential, influential columnist of his of this era, which I think George would never say complain about publicly. But Charles, I know, would agree. You know that George really is is made a mark similar to Charles's. But the thing about the way Charles writes or wrote, which kills me to say it in the past tense, is that, and it's something I try to do um, as often as I can. It's something that Michael Kinsley was really good at when he was in his prime taking the reader along in an argument, right? Mm -hmm. You could reach the end of a Charles Gradhammer column. You may not be persuaded. You would be wrong if you weren't, but you might not be persuaded. But you couldn't say, I can't figure out where this guy is coming from, right? I mean, he just, he start, it, 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 it was fiercely reasoned from beginning to end. And, and I think that's a real gift in writing to be able to sort of make an argument and take a reader along with you. And it's something that I really try to strive. So much punditry these days is just chest beating, screaming, yelling, emoting, virtue signaling, you know, owning the libs and all that kind of stuff. And that was never really what Charles was about. But anyway, um, that was a gratuitous bonus um, encomium for, for Charles. So first... What were the what questions I wanted to ask you? I can't even remember. We were talking about great TV shows. Great TV shows. Okay, I, would, so. I would also throw Breaking Bad on, on my list. I mean, Breaking Bad is... Yeah, so Breaking Bad, which I wrote a cover story for National Review saying was the best TV show of all time. I'm willing to defend that. But this is my problem with a lot of these lists, right? Like, I had a book contract in the 1990s to write the, a book on the 100 most influential conservatives of all time. And it was a horrible, grueling thing, which I violated all sorts of norms of both my people and my profession and I gave back the advance mm. because I just couldn't do it while being a TV producer but also the conceit of it you know there were a whole bunch of these books 100 most important Jews 100 most of this 100 most of that and for the 100 most influential conservatives they wanted me basically to argue that say Aristotle was the third most important conservative of all time and if you think he's the fourth or the second you're a fool right and and they also wanted half the people on the list to be alive. And the idea of switching from Edmund Burke to Gary Bauer <laughs> just gave me such heartburn. I remember calling my dad about it and just complaining because I was working round the clock on other, uh, as a television producer. And I said, Dad, I just can't do this in my free time. It's just really, really, really hard. And I wanted to do it seriously. And I will say it's one of the things that really rounded out 
a lot of my conservative self-education is I had to look into this and come up with a theory about why I would rank the people the way I would rank them. And uh, my dad, who was never very um, sympathetic to these sorts of things, said, you do know that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago on a roll of toilet paper in his jail cell. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but he had nothing else to do. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, Those are both fair points. Your yeah. dad and yours, yeah. both fair points. So, um, uh, but the problem with the rankings is this idea that by saying Breaking Bad is number one, that therefore I'm disparaging the wire. It's just stupid, right? And first of all, they're just different tastes for different sure. people, they're different criteria. I go back and when people ask me to make give my top five about anything, I reinvent. <laughs> right, well, anyway, so we had a technological malfunction of epic proportions a moment ago. I don't know where we lost the recording, but I was just saying that ranking art or ranking television shows is inherently subjective and placing one marginally above another is actually not disparaging to the other it's it's because it's not science right right yeah. well i'm a, I, as a as a film critic uh is one of the many hats i wear a lot of the times people will hear that and they'll say oh what's your favorite movie and i that's a nonsense question how am i supposed yeah. to answer that question right. i like i i there are lots of movies i like it depends on do i want to see a comedy do i want to see right but the answer is uh, uh, the godfather so right right no that, that's I mean, sort of I, 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 like you know what do you like it, what are they, there are also just some movies you don't want to watch again, you know. I mean, like that's a good list to talk about on Glop. Sometimes is the you're like, I'm glad I saw Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. I can't really conceive of a mood that I would be in that I would want to settle in. Maybe to educate my daughter or something, sure. right? But ah, oh, yeah, let me let me get a drink and yeah. settle in for two hours of Schindler's List. You know, almost three. Yeah. It's a yeah. It's a, that's a brutal one. That is a. But sure. No, I like – that would be a good list. You guys should do that. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, Godfather's on but because I've seen it a trillion times. I want to watch, you know, uh, Roadhouse or something like that. Sure. Red Dawn. Yeah. Oh, oh, one last thing, which I meant to talk about earlier. Um, well, I don't know if we have time to get into it. We don't have much time here, do we? No. I mean, we'll just leave this this really fascinating subject <laughs> for uh, – What a tease. Um uh, it'll join in the pantheon of episode 11 of things that people will never know about. <laughs> um, but, um, okay, so your weird thing. Like, what, what, what thing do you think that would shock the sensibilities of people? And, may, and if I said, I know this guy who thinks mm-hmm. X, what would it, that would automatically make someone think that you're just a strange dude be? That the, the Zack Snyder DC movies are better than the MCU. Ah, oh, jeez. And I don't mean just the Zack Snyder ones. I mean also Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman. Uh-huh. Like that whole that that group of five films is more interesting than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is it more interesting because of the challenge that is presented by the fact that DC characters are garbage, and so therefore they have a harder time making movies out of them? Yes, absolutely. That is actually part of the reason. So one of the reasons I like these movies is because it takes seriously the idea of what would happen if a god fell to Earth. Mm -hmm. If Superman actually showed up on Earth Mm -hmm. and started fighting with other Supermen, even if, you know, Superman says he's a good guy and whatever, how would that affect the rest of the world? And the the answer is it would drive the rest of the world insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole the whole uh, the you know, some people complain about Batman versus Superman not making sense because why would Batman fight Superman? They're good guys, 
And if you were the... The Frank if, Miller if comics you, were phenal- if, phenomenal. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. But if you were the most powerful human on Earth, I mean, the rich, one of the richest men on the, on the planet, who was also an Olympic caliber athlete, who went around his crime-ridden city beating the crap out of people in order to make it a marginally safer place, but mostly to get your rocks off. And then this guy shows up, and he's just literally knocking skyscrapers down. It would drive you nuts. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would find out a way to kill this person uh-huh. because he would be a terrible threat to... I mean, to your sense of yourself, but also, really, the rest of humanity. And I think the, the, these movies, the, again, the five movies that have come out, there are varying levels of quality. I think Man of Steel is legitimately good. Wonder Woman is legitimately good. Directors cut a Batman vs. Superman much better than the theatrical. Suicide Squad's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Justice League is a disaster. But, like, they have an idea at the heart of them, and that is something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has totally lacked. Now, the the average quality of the MCU films much higher. I'm willing to acknowledge that basically all of those movies, with the exception of, like, the second Thor mm-hmm. uh, and the second Iron Man, kind of exist within a spectrum of quality that's, like, three to four stars. Mm-hmm. Granted. But there's not really anything at the heart of them. DCEU okay. is much more interesting. Right, I'm going to push back on this just ever so slightly. First of all, let me just stipulate my position that the Dark Knight movies are the best comic book movies ever made. Of course. Right? No one denies that. And one of the reasons why is that, you know, like my friend Ron Bailey, was writer for Reason Magazine, grew up in very poor rural Virginia. And he was convinced that gypsies stole him from his affluent Upper West Side Jewish family and deposited him in the middle of Appalachia, right? Batman was stolen by gypsies from the Marvel comic universe. He is a Marvel comic universe conception that just happens to be in the DC universe. But also the just the Nolan directing, it was just, they're better, right? So... Um, Those are also movies with an idea at the heart of them. They are, for sure, for sure. And much of it inherited from Frank Miller and all that. But the... But you say that the, the DC is dealing with the consequences of, of what if a superhero, a god fell to Earth. I agree that's true in the Batman versus Superman thing where you have like the pundits talking about, you know, who's he accountable mm-hmm. to, no checks, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's an interesting idea. But you have a lot of that. I would argue sometimes too much of that in like the Avengers series these days where like buildings fall down, people are killed. The Ultron episode was all about these people who were killed. No, the, ultra, the problem with Ultron, the, the problem with the age of Ultron, it, it, briefly – is that that is Joss Whedon saying they didn't do enough to save all the lives in Man of Steel. So you have a 20-minute sequence where people are running around grabbing Sokovian civilians and scurrying them off to say, I don't care about that. I don't care. I'm not here to watch a rescue operation. I just want to watch <laughs> things get punched. Um, now, I, listening to your very fine uh, niche podcast recently, I heard you guys talking about Aquaman mm. and, and Shazam. Mm. Can we... Just concede up front that both will be garbage. <sighs> that Aquaman trailer did not look good. No, did it, it didn't, did it? It looked bad. So here's the thing. Who's the guy, the, the Throcky Lord who plays Aquaman? Uh, Jason Momoa. Yeah. He should be playing Prince Namor. And they're doing Aquaman as if he were Prince Namor. For listeners who don't know, Prince Namor is the vastly superior underwater royalty character. Um, he's, the, he's the Marvel Aquaman, but he's a good character. Yeah. Also called the Submariner, right? And... That, I think that's a fair summary of, of Aquaman versus Submariner. Right. And so they're trying to just sort of leech off. He even looks awful. more like Namor. He does. Which is, which is the, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, yeah, no, that looks bad. That looks bad. And it looks bad in like very predictable ways. Like the CGI looks bad. Yeah. And fake and terrible. Um, I, I, I think Shazam could work. Um, my fear about Shazam is that it, 
uh, well, my fear and my I, I think look I think Shazam could work because uh, I, you, you it's hard to go wrong with bit what if what if Superman were big where mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is big right you know uh, like that's kind of an interesting idea okay that's a fine elevator pitch we can do that um, my my only real concern with it is that it does look a lot like a Marvel movie mm-hmm. it looks a lot like uh, kind of jokey and sticky and um, I need dark I understand. and depressing. Uh-huh. And, you know, the fate of the universe, uh, or not even the fate of the universe, just the fate of the world, kind yeah. of. See, but so the irony here, I know Jack is freaking out because we're running really late, but the irony here is that's what Marvel much more is in the comics, right? In in the comics, you know, the classic thing from Spider-Man's origin story is really grim. You know, his dad, his Uncle Ben is killed and, you know, and, and it's very neocon. With great power comes great responsibility, right? And... There are dark and tragic things regularly in the Marvel comic book universe that they've kind of – although I, in the X-Men, the not the Holocaust analogs come up quite a bit, right? But in the Marvel universe – Of course, the X-Men, not MCU. I know. I know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know. That's a problem. You know. Damn Sony. But – Fox, actually. It's Fox, whatever. They're all the same to me. Um, well, they will be someday. <laughs> um, so – Part of it is is that DC is trying to marvelize itself in the cinematic world because Superman is the dumbest, dullest superhero of all time. Period. You don't and you and let the listener know. I no. Sonny's I, nodding. I'm not. But this is this is I I I growing up. I much preferred Marvel comics to DC comics. Yeah. For all these reasons. Okay. DC heroes are Wonder Woman. Uh, she's a god. She can. Kill everyone with her sword and her dumb lasso, whatever. You know, Superman is just too powerful. He's just too powerful. It's like, you know, you can only stop him with this rock. Marvel characters are always much more interesting. The cinematic universe is totally reversed. I'll I'll, I'll noodle this. I do think that the Aquaman thing is going to be very, very bad, partly for the reasons that you talked about on, on, on your podcast, which is that doing stuff underwater almost never really works very well because it doesn't work very well, right? And what you guys didn't talk about is, did you ever watch the original Linda Carter Wonder Woman? Uh, I, briefly, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, many of my expectations of what women are supposed to look like came from those mm-hmm. days. Uh, just happened to be when it was on, but it always they always found an excuse, shockingly, for her to need to be in a bathing suit, and she was she would twirl, and all of a sudden she would be in this one piece bathing suit with a uh, shower cap thing or a swimming cap, right? Because mm-hmm. heaven forbid, Wonder Woman, you know. And so she would jump off the boat into the ocean or into a lake or a river. And then the underwater shot was always in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you could actually see the concrete walls around the pool, um, which I always thought was like, you know, Linda Carter couldn't rough it once like in an actual ocean shot. But anyway, well, thank you, Sonny. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. People should definitely listen. Or let me put it this way. People should definitely give the weekly substandard a try. (laughs) That's all we ask, you know. Start at the beginning. Work your way forward. Get the All right, so uh, Sonny has left the building, and um, I have – now, this is a very special – we're going to do some post-game analysis in a second, but this is a very special episode. We're starting what I believe will be a new tradition here on the Remnant podcast, um, inspired by Jack's time interning for Hugh Hewitt. Correct. It was Jack's idea, so he gets the credit, but I I, – Agreed immediately to it. As some of you may know, we have regular intern. I have regularly have interns here at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and if you think I've abused Jack, you should just 
I could I could fill you in on what we've done to our poor interns over the years. It's sort of like the the interrogation of the of the peasants at Harren Hall by the Lannisters in um, season. Uh, I guess it would be season two of Game of Thrones. Just FYI, neither of us watches Game of Thrones, yeah, and we're I, proud of it. I know. Well, you're fools. So anyway, well, one of the things they do in, in that episode is they routinely pick one peasant after another. <sighs> oh, sorry. Were you, what, are you, what are you talking about? They pick one peasant after another, and they take a steel bucket, and they put a live rat in it, and then they strap it to the chest of the peasant, and then they put a torch under the other end of the bucket until the rat has to escape the bucket by chewing his way through. Yeah, I think that was one of the the methods of torture that was discussed in Suicide of the West. It was, indeed. Um, which Maybe that's one of the reasons why Game of Thrones appeals to me. So anyway, this is our summer intern, Alec Dent. Say hello, Alec. Hi. And this is his last week here. And so Jack suggested that, you know, because he would, he would put his interns on the air for an episode, right? Or No, just a segment. So just a segment. There is, mu- there is much greater pressure. They, I, I got like six minutes and just rapid fire Hugh-style interrogation. Uh-huh. What did he ask you? He asked me um most important thing I learned. Uh, he also made sort of small talk based on my exit interview with him ended up being much later because I didn't get to do it before I left the show that summer. But then he came back to Hillsdale for an episode of his show. And I showed up looking like a hippie because I, it was my senior year of college, and I had extremely long hair. Uh, but more like a Charles Manson hippie rather than a peace and love hippie. Well, you know, there's a great argument to be had over what's the difference, really. Yeah. Uh, but and so yeah, he asked me in a typical radio format, like very rapid fire questions. So in the podcast format, po- podcast format, it is much more relaxed. We're 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 digressing. Yeah, but we're I'm already pre- digressing. I'm pressed for time, so let's get right to it then. Alec, how'd you like your internship? Oh, I thought it was a great experience. I, I really learned a lot. Tell tell people a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where do you go to school? I am from a small town in North Carolina called Lumberton. I go to UNC Chapel Hill. And what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, I would like to go into journalism after I graduate. So I've got one more year Ooh. of school. And you you interned at Free Beacon, didn't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, two so, summers ago. So you actually recognized Sonny when he came in the room. Yeah. And uh, what kind of journalism do you want to do? I would like to do uh, opinion writing generally. Uh-huh. I'm really interested in film. So if I could have a, a Sunny Bunch-esque career, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> that was an authentic near spit take. I had no idea such words could be formulated in that order. It's <laughs> um, uh, interesting. Um, so what did you learn? Here? What were your favorite parts about interning for me slash Jack at the American Enterprise Institute this summer? I think my main takeaway was just how much work actually goes into writing articles. Just the incredible amount of research that Jack does and that Jack made me do this summer (laughs) really made me (laughs) appreciate how difficult your job actually is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, And it's amazing how much credit Jack takes for all the hard work that you did this summer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. And... Somehow you find a way even to use the intern against me. Yeah, well, it's not hard. And what did you think about interning at AEI? I mean, I thought it was a great experience, especially the food. Yeah, the food here is very special. We can't let – we can't talk about that in detail because the the peasants would would encircle the building in in protest. Um, uh, But no, the food here is – particularly for an intern, like to be able to eat that well for free all summer is pretty sweet. Didn't charge you anything, right? No. No, okay. Back when I interned here 25 
something years ago. Um, you had to pay like some nominal two or three dollars, oh and it was it's a huge burden. Um, and um, what was your least favorite part about interning here in the summer? Careful. Yeah. yeah this is. <laughs> I think uh, people are going to have to wait for my tell-all book okay. after the internship ends on Friday. Wise. Wise. Um, I mean, a better answer would have been feeling like you didn't have enough opportunities to work even harder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe all the things on high shelves that Jack had me reach. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... P- People have no idea how tall no, you are true. listening that's to this. That's not a joke that plays over, yeah. over podcast. I'm not going to tell them how tall you are. Um, he's tall. So uh, what would you guys think of the Sunny Bunch conversation? Uh, we, we have very different opinions. He was much more reasonable in person. He always is. It's very annoying. Yeah. Um, even Even his most outrageous opinions were presented in a way that made you not want to attempt to strangle him for uttering them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what'd you think, Alec? I, I thought it was good. I'm I'm a fan of a lot of what Sonny writes. I think I think his film reviews are always very good. And actually, Jack and I had been discussing uh, prior to the taping the Batman versus Superman uh-huh. extended cut, which Jack is refusing to watch. Batman v Superman. It's like a, they they stylized a, like a legal case for no reason other than Zack Snyder's just a pretentious. Well, not even pretentious. He's a would be pretentious director. He's not even good enough to be pretentious. Okay, so did it not occur to either of you with the glaring omission slash lacuna of this week's episode of the Remnant Podcast was? Bigfoot erotica. Bigfoot erotica! The entire country's talking about Bigfoot erotica. Twitter is aflame with a passion that can... Aroused, you might say. With a passion that can only be rivaled by a male Bigfoot in heat (laughs) about the issue of Bigfoot erotica, which, first of all, again, listeners, it's not Bigfoot porn. Stop calling it Bigfoot porn. It's erotica. It's a more elevated thing. Could you explain what the difference is? Well, we've talked about this before. Um, Let me be clear. I am not a fan of Bigfoot erotica. This emerged, what, episode eight with Andy mm, Ferguson? No, that – what episode was that? Alec has been going through them. Oof. That, that sounds about right because uh, it yeah. wasn't shortly thereafter that the first on-air reading took place. Yeah, because I, I basically just casually mentioned it. If my memory is correct, I've never listened to this podcast. But my, if my memory is correct, I just brought it up as about how there are weird things – out there, yeah, right, and that was the first one that came to your head. And I referenced Bigfoot erotica, and I remember, I remember mentioning it to Andy Ferguson. I don't remember if it was the first episode that I mentioned it, but I because I just remember how wide his eyes got. No, like, I th- oh I'm gosh, pretty. Sh- what have I gotten myself into? That was the that was the locus classicus. Yeah, and so so people think I'm a devotee of it, but then it just turned out that by mere mentioning it, the masses wanted to hear more about it. Uh huh. And that's why we did the occasional readings of Bigfoot erotica. But I think I got into this before. It's like the um, difference between sexy and kinky. Sexy, <laughs> use a feather. Kinky, use the whole chicken. <laughs> um, uh, Bigfoot porn would leave nothing to the imagination, right? And erotica is more suggestive. I think it's more literary. Um, and... Uh, uh, but anyway, the thing the thing that bums me out about this entire nationwide discussion of Bigfoot erotica is that I can immediately tell. Like, so last night I was on Special Report with 
with uh, and Greg Gutfeld was on mm-hmm. because he was there to plug a sort of half book he wrote. And um, I like Greg, but it's it's basically a collection of his monologues from the five, and he's going to make a gazillion dollars out of it. But the the topic of Bigfoot erotica came up, and and he started making jokes about it, and like it was clear that he had never heard my podcast because and that's that's the thing that bothers me is like when people start talking about big Virago, like they've never heard of it before it means they are not remnant listeners and it hurts me it hurts me it hurts me deeply because some of these people are my friends but you know you just have to take the good with the bad are you more disturbed by the people who are just now coming to know what bigfoot erotic is or by the people who knew what it was before you mentioned it on your podcast those people are messed up. <laughs> like, you know, I'll grant you that. Um, and uh, and so, you know, but since then I've been testing to see what other forms of – because like we could do a whole episode on the weirdness of self-published straight ebook stuff. Uh-huh. You know, there's like um, – there's a bizarre world of I've, – I've read that there is a bizarre world. <laughs> Important qualifier. Where, you know, there's a whole like world of uh, – Star Trek fan fiction where they That's where that's where um slash fiction began in Star that's right. Trek. That's right. And then I was explaining this to Alec the other day. One of the many important things that I taught him over the summer. <laughs> and but a subgenre of that is where Kirk and Spock are gay lovers. Yeah. Um which of course if I were Czar, this sort of writing would be banned. But um <laughs> it's um that would that would put a whole new spin on the ending of the Wrath of Khan. It would and it would work. Right, yeah, I mean, it would. It, it, it very, very Top Gun. Right, that all of a sudden you realize <laughs> the real reason why Kirk is crying, yeah, is because his boy toy is gone. You know, his ears aren't the only thing that are pointy. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you did not have to go there. Who, which, which of us was a thirteen-year-old boy more recently? Um, Alec, but he's the one least likely to make a sex. Yeah, joke for everyone who doesn't know, Alec is sitting here. Um, in his bow tie, thinking, my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, I've been thinking I, that I'm all summer long. I'm glad all of this research into other types of erotica is going to take place with the next intern. There are you have... two days left. In the <laughs> um, there's only what I could find on, on Amazon. There is only one ebook of Trump erotica so far. That um, will certainly change. I would think so. And I'm not going to do any readings of that. And um, Any more readings of that. That's right. That's right. Because um, we did bring it up in the previous episode, mm-hmm. yeah. And then there was that whole acted out thing on episode eleven. But whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, it's no, 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 we can't. No, no, no. All right. So I have. A, I, I have. A, you're. Have you been on his youngins podcast? I have. Okay. I was in the first and third episodes. All right. So I have a question for you guys. You are. You, know, you are now professional young people, right? Uh, <laughs> Not just young people or professionals, but professional young people. You have a young person podcast, right? I yeah, I guess we do. Yeah, I mean, you're you're moonlighting as one, right? Yeah, That's right. You know, so I tweeted, admittedly, halfway through my second martini at a restaurant in in Aspen last week, something along the lines. You can link to the original tweet. Uh, something along the lines of if advice to young pundits, and I think i included activists but maybe not if your professional brand a term i hate is based entirely on being young my advice is to move on as is to develop another expertise or skill or whatever it is and move beyond because being young is by definition temporary that was the gist of it Mm, well not unless i get some vials of young people blood that's true i mean also johnny depp has been young for a really long time and keanu reeves tom cruise 
Mickey Rooney was young for a very long time as well. Um, <laughs> and Tom Cruise is the same age that John Voight was in the original Mission Impossible movie. Oh, wow. Which is creepy as hell. Um, yeah, that, that was tr- – so Mark Hamill was the same age as Alec Guinness in the f- – as that Alec Guinness was in A New Hope when he was in The Force Awakens, which I believe also. It's kind of weird to think about, but it also kind of looks – Yeah, no, I mean Mark Hamill looks like he was, you know, chewed up by a polar bear. I mean he does not look good. <laughs> um um, he actually, he actually looks like he just got out of a methadone clinic. He's got those watery eyes and he's all sort of like, his skin looks like jerky. He looks like Slavo Zizek is the weird thing. Oh, there's that. Yeah. So anyway, this tweet, which I, am, I entirely stand by as advice, it's advice you've heard me give in one form or another or talk about one form or another a bunch of times, to me strikes me as utterly basic and banal, right? If you're part of a boy band... And you want to have a long-lasting career in music, you have to sort of move from being a teeny bopper singer, right? If the same thing with if you're if if you're on the Mickey Mouse Club, you got to sort of change your look. And I came to Washington in the 1990s, where Gen X was huge, and all of these legacy media outlets were hiring young people to be Gen X like correspondents and Gen X experts, and tell us, young waif from the woods. Tell us what what young people are thinking because we cannot understand your ways, right? And the smartest among them, like Jonathan Carl, I'm pretty sure was a CNN's Gen X correspondent. He just wanted to be a reporter. So he worked really hard to not be a young reporter, but to be a reporter who happened to be young, right? So anyway, that's where I was coming from this. This elicited so much vitriol and bile and attacks from people, people attacking like, you know, my career, people, you know – going nuts as if I had used their church as a stable or something. And I I don't understand it. So young people, explain this to me. What is so offensive of this? Well, I think a lot of them thought that you were viciously subtweeting me. (laughs) No, I never heard that from anybody. But besides, I wouldn't subtweet you. I'd say that to your face. (laughs) Okay. Um, Jack did use your tweet in promotion of our latest episode. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. but no, I think the real reason this is similar to the there was a similar degree of outrage when you wrote the article about youth identity politics being the laziest form of identity politics. Which it is. But when when you say lazy, people think you mean wow, these people aren't doing anything, which is that definition of lazy like yeah, sure David Hogg is organizing these r- rallies and marches going on TV a lot. You mean like it's lazy in the form of there's nothing there's like nothing less interesting or less harder to earn or achieve than simply your age. It's like, and that, and, and nothing that lasts. It's intellectually lazy. Yes, that's. Right. But I, I think that's the the, the the outrage for this tweet is coming from a similar place. Yeah, I didn't say that anyone was lazy. I was just saying, like, identify if 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 you're going to build your brand about being young and you're not. Mickey Rooney or Keanu Reeves or something like that. It's a problem. For instance, if you're 35 years old and you're still doing the Young Americans podcast. No, we my my sign off phrase is don't trust anyone over 30. So once I turn 30, I I have to end it or at least rename it. Yeah, or come up with something good and original. Yeah. <laughs> we we did discuss the eventuality of renaming it. So at a certain point we will transition to being the middle-aged American. <laughs> okay. That's fine, but again, I'm uh, Let's just say uh, I said to you, I met this unbelievably fascinating guy. Oh, he was so interesting. You know, his background was just so, you know, just intriguing. And you say, oh, really? How so? And I say, well, 
He was 22. <laughs> and then I don't have to add anything. It makes no friggin' sense, right? We judge people by what they use their own intellect to conjure or, or explain or reveal and by the experiences that they have. There is nothing – there's nothing you can tell me about being 22 in a generic abstract sense that I need to know because I was 22. You can tell me what it's like to be 22 today or what you did you know, in your previous 22 years that might be interesting or some theory that you have. But somehow saying – if you begin a sentence, as a 22-year-old, I think X. I don't really care. Um, if you just say I think X – and then X is interesting. That's great. It becomes no more or no less interesting because you say you're 22 or 18. You know, it's it's, and the the thing about identity politics in general is that you are claiming expertise or authority for something that you had no hand in. Right? You know, you didn't make yourself black or white or gay or straight or young or old. You literally just walked into that. Right? I mean, and. So this idea that somehow it's particularly interesting it just baffles me. And I don't – and I hate the transitive property of identity politics. Right? I mean like I rant about this all the time. The greatest generation, if you stormed Normandy, right, and took out a German pillbox, I want to buy you a beer for the rest of your life, right? If on D-Day you were in a drunk tank in Peoria after having like um, tried to have sex with a cow, you're not – Great in any sense of the imagination. You're not, you don't deserve – you're no better than you – know, you, you, there's nothing that rubs off on you from what those guys who stormed Normandy did. And there is this tendency because it's easy and it's lazy to ascribe attributes to people who didn't earn any of those attributes. And that's my problem with it. But just as simple career advice, it's just good advice. And I just – I don't – I still don't get why it makes people angry. People are people. That's all I can say. <sighs> And I think in cow sex, you may have just created the next Bigfoot erotica for this podcast. <laughs> uh, it's been done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, can we can we stop this now? I think. All right. So um, uh, we got Alec to say cow sex. And now I've said cow sex. Yeah, you have. Um, Let's just all go around the table and say it to destigmatize it. <laughs> John. Um, no, because cow sex, again, is the there wrong we go. word. It's, <laughs> it's bovine erotica. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, I liked having Sonny on. He Again, I agree. He's far more um, – he's so much less of a monster in person than he is in his public persona. Or his public written person. Well, Sauron had a fair form as well, mm -hmm. as did Dracula. That's true. Or does Dracula? What? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if Dracula has been killed or not. What? Never mind. <laughs> um. Anyway, so and uh, but Alec, I want to say thank you very much for. Uh, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you thank for you your yeoman work. Thank you for letting Jack take all the credit for almost all <laughs> of your great work. Um, and contrary to what Jack may have told you, I actually will serve as a reference for you if yeah. you like. Thank you. I didn't say a good reference, but I will be a reference. <laughs> um, hey, reference. And uh, yes, he exists. <laughs> <laughs> um, that guy definitely is not a fake human being. And um, I do want to get him in a quick plug here, some housekeeping stuff. The National, Institute, National Review Institute, for those of you who do not know, is the 
nonprofit entity that actually owns the for-profit National Review. I am a National Review Institute fellow. Its mission is to support National Review in all of its different ways. And uh, it's headed up by a lady named Lindsay Craig, who's doing a, uh, an amazing job. And we have these amazing gala, big events once a year, parties, whatever you want to call it, um, where we give out prizes, William F. Buckley prizes, one in philanthropy and one in uh, for writing or the arts or whatever. Last year, that was where we gave it to Tom Wolfe. A few years ago, I think the first or second one, we gave it to Charles Crowdhammer, coincidentally enough. And uh, this year, we're giving it to Edwin Fulner, who for a long time was the head of the Heritage Foundation. And so uh, we're inviting you to join its host committee as a sponsor of the fifth annual William F. Buckley Prize Dinner hosted in Chicago on October 18, honoring Edwin J. Fulner and Karen Buckwald Wright. For more information and to join, please visit www.nrinstitute.org slash WFB Prize 2018. The link will again also be up on the um, jonahgoldberg.com. We hope to see you this fall. Thanks. Um, and other things, uh, please, you know, uh, it'll be a long time before the Weekly Substandard or any of these other niche podcasts can catch up in terms of our reviews on iTunes. But I am dismayed that that Arthur Brooks, the outgoing president of the American Enterprise Institute, has overtaken uh, this podcast um, in its iTunes rankings. And that really cannot stand. So please review it, subscribe to it wherever uh, you can, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, you know, I don't I, all those places. And again, if you like this episode, um, even if you are vicious weekly substandard partisans, our Twitter handle is at Jonah Remnant. Um, thanks, everybody. I don't know what's happening next week for sure, but it's going to be exciting. And until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. There you go. friend.